0: Okay, Jesse, last week's story had about 10 times as many twists and turns and crazy characters as usual. What you got for me this week?
1: Two loved up teenagers marry after a surprise pregnancy, but the honeymoon is short lived. After the two divorce and each remarry, a bitter custody battle turns fatal. I'm Andy Cassette, and I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Andy, hi, Jessie. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about bad marriages, worse affairs, and love gone fatally wrong.
0: You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod, and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast.
1: If you are enjoying this show, please love slash murder a five star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Thank you guys so much, as usual. It really does. Help us with the ratings,
0: help new people find us, and we appreciate it so much. It does. A small little review does a lot for us. But if you want to support the show more directly, you can also head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod, where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. And I'm also going to be officially updating the website and Patreon this week. So we should have some new merch for you to check out and purchase, which is
1: oh yay! very exciting. It's about time. It's been a a while since we had a refresh. And this week, as always, we're so excited to shout out an amazing new set of patrons.
0: Jennifer R., Leilani V., and Valerie A.,
1: Deanna L., Bridget W.G., and Sheridan D., Gina
0: S., Samira D., and Tim F., Gatrice P., Tammy G., and Rebecca F., Jillian C., Samraj M., and Zara S., Rayuri W, W, M, and Nikki, and Catherine B and Sabra S.
1: Wow, guys. Thank you so much for being patrons. And thank you to all of you who are maybe joining us for the very first time. We're so excited to have you. Yay. I'm also excited. I think that this is second to last until we are together. And we might record two together, right? Because you're
0: staying with me for a little bit. Yeah, I think we will record two together. And I'm so excited. I feel like it's been a minute since we've recorded together.
1: Yes, especially because I think when we've been traveling, we've only been together for four or five days at a point. So it never made sense to record together. And so this is going to be the first time that we have a a longer time to record together. And it's
0: always just slightly more unhinged when we're actually (laughs) in each other's presence. Yeah, for anyone who this is your first time, we do not record together. We're bi-coastal. So when we do get to record together, it's just a little bit more fun, a little bit more saucy.
1: (laughs) It is a little bit more saucy. It's like the original pregnancy episode where our hormones were making us crazy. Just a little. Well, speaking of crazy, I think we should jump into today's episode. Let's do it. It was very, very early in the morning, or to most people, I would say the middle of the night on February 16th, 2002, when four friends were on their way to a chicken show. Um, there is a lot of questions about what this chicken show was. Seeing as all of these people were in agriculture, I think it was an honest-to-goodness poultry show. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, these four friends on their way to the chicken show spotted flames off in the distance. So the men in the Toyota minivan that was Yes, Andy, full of cages of actual chickens, live chickens, all, like I said, worked in some aspect of farming. Mm -hmm. So they knew that in this rural area of Rutledge, Georgia, where they were, that if they saw a fire that was out in a field, this could be something that was potentially hugely detrimental to another farmer's livelihood. It's either going to burn their fields and their crops or kill their livestock or burn down their barn. So immediately the minivan decided to go and see what was going on and get as close to the fire as possible to see if they needed to call the fire department or if this was some sort of controlled burn. Although that seemed strange because it was 3.30 in the morning at this point. Yeah. The minivan pulled nearer to the source of the fire while one of the men called the sheriff. It was not a wildfire, thankfully, or a barn fire. It was a car that was burning at the center of the inferno. But it very could still well spread because there were patches of ground and grass that were already on fire near the car. So the fire department needed to hurry and get this car out before it spread throughout the dry grass. The Rutledge Fire Department arrived before the sheriff's deputy did and had extinguished most of the fire only 15 minutes after the call to everyone's sweeping relief. It was clear to the deputy that this was no accident. The smell of fuel, of some sort of accelerant, was very clearly still hanging in the air. Okay. So you could tell that somebody had very much intentionally set this fire. Now, no one appeared to be in the vehicle, which, of course, is always a good sign. The deputy at this point thought that it was... Most likely that somebody was torching a stolen car or perhaps engaging in insurance fraud where they're going to burn their own vehicle to collect the money. It would not be unheard of. Hell, it could have even just been some kids screwing around. You never know. But then there was something else. The fire chief reported to the deputy that while no person had been present in the vehicle, There did seem to be some deer meat or perhaps some beef, a slaughtered cow, in the trunk. What? Yes. So this seems very odd because that's not always how you transport that type of meat. So they didn't know if somebody was out hunting maybe and had a deer in the trunk. It was then that the deputy realized that it wasn't just the heat and the smoke assaulting his senses. And not just the tang of the accelerant in the air, but something else, something that he was smelling that was more distinct, more gamey, a smell that people should not have to ever experience in their lifetimes.
0: It was the odor of burning human flesh. Yeah, that was what I figured. I, a beef in the trunk is alarming.
1: It's a little alarming.
0: Yeah. And then why would you light it on fire if you were actually hunting for either game or for meat?
1: Yeah, it seems like you'd take that out of the trunk first. I honestly think it's because if you're not somebody who works in law enforcement or a homicide division of law enforcement, I don't think our brains want to go there. No,
0: I agree. I think that it's like a defense mechanism for yes. our brains. Yeah,
1: And so the fire chief recognized it as flesh And his brain could only go so far as a hunter. Like, what what would make sense that's not diabolical? And unfortunately, the sheriff's deputy had experience with homicides and knew that that was not the case. So he went for a closer look, and his hunch was confirmed. It was not an animal in the trunk. It was the burned remains of a human, and there were two of them. Oh, my God. Thanks to a license plate that was salvaged from the crime scene, the identity of these poor souls would not long remain a mystery, nor would it take long for two other individuals to become lead suspects. What would later be so shocking would be the depths the killer would go to for control and revenge, and a stunning truth that would only come out far after the murders. This is a story that starts out like a pop song or the beginning of a Nicholas Sparks novel, something where there's summer break, two teenagers from different backgrounds being drawn to each other, young love turning into a young marriage. But when that marriage sours and both parties remarry, things go horribly wrong. This is not, unfortunately, in the realm of modern-day conscious uncoupling and modern families with two ex-partners who are all sitting around the Thanksgiving dinner table together. This is not that type of situation. This is the type of situation when divorces go real bad. Yep. So I feel like between this subject matter and next week's, which will be our pre-Thanksgiving episode, This is a lot about all the ways family can get really dark. My main source today is the book Death Trap by M. William Phelps. I also watched. Yes, we're back with M. William Phelps. I actually, he's so prolific. We got quite a few of them up in the arsenal that we will be trotting out over the next year or so. I also watched an episode of I'd Kill for You called Bloody Custody. And I think I do have some additional sources, articles, everything. And that will all be in the show notes if you want to. Check that out. I would say that there's one major trigger warning for today, and that's extreme domestic violence. Ugh. Yeah,
0: unfortunately. Whenever you say that, I always think of the candle episode. The voodoo candle episode? The episode where there were, like, candles lit, but he, like, I think it was a Thanksgiving episode. Oh, it
1: was. It was,
0: like, really bad for scented candles. Yes, that was the Kelsey Barreth episode. is horrible. I always think of that whenever you say extreme domestic violence. That's like the first thing that pops in my mind.
1: This is similar in some ways. There's a backstory situation that's really quite scary. And then there's, of course, the current situation we will be talking about, which is kind of flipped, to be honest. We don't talk about male victims very often, but we will be talking about both male and female victims today of domestic violence. So let's rewind and go back to 13 years before this horrible discovery in 1989 when two teenagers between their junior and senior years in high school were embarking upon a summer affair. Jessica Callis was a bit of a misfit. She was attractive and bright, but she was also somewhat of a troublemaker for lack of a better word. A friend of hers would say that she did not belong to anyone group they called themselves goths or outsiders based on the photos I don't think it's traditionally what you would think about with a goth with like the heavy makeup it's more like let's say in the breakfast club kind of like they just seemed like a little offbeat more than goth I would say but for the suburb of Birmingham Alabama Maybe Jessica did stick out in that way, that it seemed like it was she was a more of an extreme outsider than she really truly was. She liked to mock the popular kids, which is why it was so interesting that in the summer of 1989, she ended up falling for Alan Bates, who we'll be talking about today, who was one of the most popular kids at Shades Valley High, and everyone just adored this guy. So funny. Yeah. One of her friends is talking about in the book how she seemed to mock and denigrate anyone who was traditionally popular, preppy, and Alan was just the most stereotypical. Other than he wasn't really a big jock, per se, but other than that, I mean, he was just the shining golden boy. He was passionate and intelligent, and I think that that's where their similarities really lay, but he was very different. He had a very warm and loving family. His parents had been married for decades. He had an older and a younger brother. So he was the middle of three boys. He was very popular, like I said, but he was also responsible. He was voted class president for three years running in ninth, 10th, and 11th grade. Whoa. Yes. He was a devoted member of his church and he played drums in a gospel quartet. Oh. <laughs> it's a little bit. That was like his bad boyness playing the drums. <laughs> He's the drummer. <laughs> little drummer boy. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jessica had once been a promising student, but her studies had slipped when she started taking interest in boys and I think other various methods of escape. So, she experimented with drugs and alcohol, and her early life had been very far from Alan's picket fence existence. Jessica's father George had been an abusive alcoholic who had very deeply harmed her mother Diane. And Jessica and her siblings, well, blackout. I'm not entirely sure that the abuse was limited to just physical, but it seemed like it was more of that milieu that he would get drunk and angry. And he had a very, very short temper and was prone to extremely violent outbursts. Diane would manage to find the courage to break free of George and divorce him when Jessica was about seven or eight. But the psychic scars of that experience growing up and and some things that came after would change the course of Jessica's life and, of course, her outlook.
0: Yep. I would imagine.
1: Yeah. When Jessica and Alan first got together, she did tell him some horrible stories about her father and her upbringing. Some of the stuff is just like you can't make up. It just wouldn't occur to somebody else. Like she told Alan one story about how she had this dog she loved when she was little and it got into a fight on the street with another dog. And the other dog was a lot bigger than her dog. And she became worried that the other dog was going to kill it. So she ran to her house and got her dad to help her saying, you know, our pet is being mauled. Please come help. Please come help. And he got right in the car and then ran over both of the dogs, killing them. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Like, I don't even know how to put it because the hope that she thought that he was going to help the dog because he was getting in the car and driving down the road. And then the horror at the moment when he doesn't stop. Watching your pet get run over
0: is like, it's like a nightmare. Did it happen to you? Have you seen it happen? Oh my God, no. But I literally think about it every time I get in my car and pull back because of all the stray cats in our neighborhood. I literally like every time I get in my car, I think about it. And I think about like how horrifying it is. One of our neighbor's dogs got ran over recently and she still lets her other dogs like off leash and it just... No. And every time I drive by her house, I think about it every single time. It's one of those things that I would imagine witnessing is truly scarring for the rest of your life. Especially when it's intentional. Yes. By someone who you're supposed to love you? Yes, that you had called
1: to for help in a situation and ended up causing so much
0: more harm. Oh my God, that's horrifying.
1: Alan's heart ached for Jessica, especially when she told him, despite this, she was still left depressed and abandoned when her father and mother broke up. Their custody battle was really bad. It's a precursor to what we will talk about today. And it seems like generationally, this was something that haunted the family. Obviously, for good reason, Diane was very frightened of George and he was legally able to see his children, to have visitation, but he was not because of protection orders allowed to be near Diane. So essentially she would put the kids on the porch and lock her door and say, you can come get the kids. But sometimes he didn't come. So the kids would be waiting out on the porch for hours and feel utterly abandoned by their father. And eventually he just kind of disappeared from their lives altogether, which is obviously if you have this type of person in your life and based on a story I'm going to tell you about in a little bit better, but it doesn't feel that way to a child. Absolutely not. Yeah, I don't understand how he got
0: any custody if he's blackout and violent.
1: I don't know how much of the abuse was reported to the police. Okay. Because that wasn't exactly something people did back in the day. So I'm not really sure how much of a record he had at that point or how he was given legal visitation. But he had been, and then he kind of just never showed up. So that was that. Alan was understanding and, of course, receptive to Jessica's stories of abuse, but that obviously wasn't what attracted him to her. That was part of the whole package that he eventually fell in love with. But what he really liked about Jessica was that she was very gregarious. She was a very naturally smart person and she was fun. She was willing to let loose and have some fun. He definitely was more of the type that had dated more of the preppy girls, the church girls, the student government girls. And those were not necessarily the girls that are like going to throw back a beer with you and have sex. (laughs) So this for him was a revelation in having a summer romance with somebody that was truly fun and very physically interested in him. I believe he was a virgin at this point. I'm not entirely sure. But it seemed like everything with Jessica was heightened because of her interest and her experience and this life she had lived that made her seem so much older than her years. So he was into it. Their summer romance got hot and got pretty fiery and fast as these things are wont to do when you're in your first flush of love and sex and you're 16 and 17 years old. So Alan and his family took a yearly summer vacation down on the Gulf Coast. And Jessica is almost immediately a little controlling, a little possessive over him. So it's just a hot summer fling at this point, but she's already wanting to know where he is and who he's spending time with which didn't really bother him. He wasn't seeing anyone else. So it wasn't something that really affected him. It only affected some of his female relationships because he did have some good platonic girlfriends that she chased away. Okay. So when he was going on this vacation, he said, don't worry, I'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're going to still stay going out. We can chat on the phone, whatever you want. And he told her kind of where they go every year and what beach they spend time on. And he was kind of surprised one day, two days into his vacation when he and his brother woke up really early and they were on the balcony of this condo that they were staying at, that they stayed at every year. And you could kind of see the beach below. And lo and behold, there is Jessica and one of her girlfriends sitting out on the beach in the very early morning. He's like, whoa, that's crazy. What is she doing here? And so he ended up going down to the beach and she giddily revealed that she and her friend had driven four hours down to where the Bates had been staying. And then they had driven around until they found the Bates car in one of the parking lots of the condominium complex. And then at that point, they figured out which part of the beach belonged to that condo and camped out on the beach, figuring that they'd probably be going to the beach the next day based on what Alan told them and that they'd get to see each other.
0: Run. Yeah, (laughs)
1: huge red flag. You've been dating for a couple weeks and already she's driving four hours and hunting down your family car to find you. That's not a good sign. Kevin, Alan's brother, thought it was really strange. Older brother. Kevin, I think, is the younger brother. But even he could see that this seems pretty aggressive, especially because she didn't even end up staying that long. They ended up spending something like four hours
0: together that day. And then she had to get back to Alabama. So she drove four hours back. It's kind of better that she drove back and wasn't like, we don't know where we're going to stay tonight. Like, that's what I would imagine. (laughs) (laughs) So he just thought that the whole thing
1: seemed pretty intense. And also, you have to remember that this is a very church going happy family here so they also were wondering how on earth was a 16 year old girl getting out and spending the night on the beach with no parental supervision which is not something that would have happened in the Bates family obviously and that was kind of the thing even though Jessica's mother had remarried what seems like a really stand-up guy so she did eventually have a, a father figure in her life and her stepfather It seemed like no one could discipline Jessica. Yeah. Ever. She didn't answer to any authority whatsoever. Not her mother, not her stepfather, and her stepfather certainly tried. So as a result, by the time that Alan and Jessica hooked up, she was like pretty much running wild, which I think is why maybe her grades had slipped too because she never felt like she had to do anything. She didn't really care. When Alan's family returned, the relationship continued But it seemed that Jessica's desire for a relationship with Alan maybe was not totally returned. I think that he thought this was more going to be a fun fling, and she thought perhaps it was going to be a more intense, monogamous relationship. She said to one of her girlfriends at the time that she was keeping him in line with sex, essentially, how she didn't really know if he'd want to have a traditional relationship with her, but she knew that he had never had sex like this or ever before. And that was really what was keeping him coming back for more. As school began, though, it seemed like Alan had a change in priorities as far as the crazy summer of sex. He was planning on running again for class president, and he was really passionate about behind-the-scenes stagecraft, the theater. Being a technical director or a stage manager on Broadway was his goal in life. Which is really interesting. It's so funny that that's very cool. Yeah, that's where, and it wasn't like a lot of people drawn to theater are drawn to the stage or acting. He was really obsessed with the production, with making all the moving parts work, not being the one getting all the accolades, but the ones that's like setting up the world. And he was focused at this point on getting a scholarship to college so he could follow this passion. I guess he had like a really cute back and forth with his mom about. How he told her he was definitely going to win a Tony Award someday. And he promised her that when he did, he'd buy her a Jaguar. So she was like, every time he talked about it, she'd be like, I can't wait to get my Jaguar, so you better get working.
0: Very cute.
1: Yeah, so it definitely seemed like what had happened between Jessica and Alan was really just a summer romance, kind of like Danny and Sandy. Like two people from different worlds. They had a hot summer and it just wasn't meant to be until... Jessica had some news that she had to give Helen. She was pregnant.
0: Of course she was.
1: They'd only been dating for about six weeks, too. Oh, my God. That means that she
0: got pregnant like the first time
1: they had sex. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, although you have to say, times up at bat when you're a teenager, though, is a lot different when you're in your 30s and trying to conceive. You're like, okay, we have to have sex like at least twice this month. (laughs) Kids are like doing it 10 times a day in the back of their parents' car. A lot more sperm happening. Yeah,
0: just all, all over the place, just flying around. <laughs> just, just flying out of every, into every orifice. Just It's just a sperm buffet
1: when you're in your teenage <laughs> oh, years. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, Alan knew immediately that he was going to marry Jessica and do the right thing. Again, he was raised in a pretty religious household, and abortion was absolutely not an option in his mind. And allegedly at this point, I don't know if he knew this or not. This just came up later in the book that I read. Jessica had allegedly already had an abortion, if not multiple abortions at this point in her life, because a friend remembers saying to her, well, what is different about this situation? And it was mostly that she was going to get to stay in a really nice private hospital that Alan's grandfather was going to pay for if they were married, and that she knew The Bateses were a lovely family, and Alan was a really stand-up guy who treated her with respect, and she could tell based on just his character and also who his influences were that he was going to be a good dad.
0: Yeah, which is going to be huge for her.
1: Exactly. This seemed like it was the opportunity to recreate the life that she never had in this unconditional love from a paternal figure was a gift that she could give to her children. I have to say, the Bateses took this news in stride. They did not cast any aspersions over her. They did not ever make her feel bad about the situation or getting pregnant. Obviously, it takes two to tango, which is nice for a family to know that.
0: Yeah, it seems like they're just really good people.
1: They're just really good people. I mean, they completely welcomed her into the family. And she even moved in with them. So they got engaged, obviously. Jessica moved in with them prior to the marriage. And they did notice that she was pretty obsessive about Alan and that she was prone to dramatic outbursts. But the whole family just chalked this up to immaturity. I mean, she's 17 years old. And like pregnancy
0: hormones, too.
1: Pregnancy hormones. This is obviously you're a teenager- thrown into a very hormonal and adult situation after all. And the Bateses also knew that she really didn't have the same background, obviously, that they did, and that she had gone through a very traumatic past. So some of these stories that she told them, and she told the whole family, the story about the dog, lots of other stories about horrific abuse in the family, to the point where some of the Bateses kind of questioned whether she was exaggerating because, you know, these people don't have any experience in these type of upbringings. And so it it caused them to question, like, could this be real? Or is she really just telling us a tale to make us feel more sympathetic towards her? But there is something that I'm about to talk about, guys, that would happen a couple years after they got together and they had a baby because they have a baby in 1990 that would absolutely lend credence to. Everything in all of the horrible stories Jessica told. So, this is the trigger warning for domestic violence, part one over here. On November 11th, 1992, George, Jessica's father, called the Chattanooga, Tennessee Police Department and reported matter of factly that he had been beating his wife. Now, this is his second wife after he left Diane, and that she had stopped breathing. The police and EMTs immediately responded to the call, but it was too late by the time they arrived. George's second wife, Olivia, was indeed dead. The police said that he had beat her so severely that her face was not even recognizable as a human. Oh my God. That is how swollen and black and blue, it's all of our human features were obscured because of what he had done to that woman. George was arrested, convicted of murder, and sentenced to life in prison without parole. So, yeah, I'd be inclined to not only believe Jessica, but also feel like it was miraculous that her mother and siblings and herself, all of them, made it out alive. I could see
0: how, like, the Bates would be so blown away by these stories that they couldn't fathom that they would be true. But it's kind of probably therapeutic in some way for Jessica to be able to talk about all of this with Alan's family and be able to...
1: I think it's therapeutic. I think that Jessica has two sides. I think one part of it is the little girl who's becoming a woman right now who so desperately is calling out for love and healing. And then I think that there was also some part of her that likes shocking these people. And I think that that's what they were also responding to because they wanted to give her this love and this home base, which they were. But then I think that the part of them that made them question whether she was telling them these things that were totally true or exaggerating was that she seemed to take a little bit of excitement and being able to show these people that had only had love in their life, like, look how bad it can be. Like, look what the world's like. And like, you dummies are all older than me, but you don't even know what the real world is like. Like, I'm telling you something. Yeah. So I think that there was something there too where she took some pleasure in shocking them or just revealing to them this horrible truth of the world that I honestly I think people listen to true crime either because they've been through something and they want to hear stories of healing or finding other people that have gone through something similar, or they haven't. And there is some part of us that wants to know what else is out there that we feel prepared to face it, or we don't feel Completely naive to the possibility of evil in our world. So I think that there was like a side of that as well. But in any case, they absolutely welcomed Jessica and they ended up getting married on January 26, 1990. And they had their first baby girl on March 20th of that year. Now, there will ultimately be two children involved in this story. And it seems like to me that the now adult children do not want to be involved in the story as far as I have seen, as far as a lot of people get involved in the telling of these cases in the media. And since I haven't seen them get involved in the telling of these cases in media, I'm just not going to say their names. I think that's right. Great. So Alan was committed to being a good father and husband, but he also refused to give up his dreams. And he told his parents that very much. When he found out that Jessica was pregnant, he actually stewed on it for a couple of weeks and then wrote them a long letter saying that He wanted to get married to Jessica. He was going to do the right thing. But with their help, he'd also like to continue trying to drive forth getting an education. And he would work during the time he was in school. And he was going to do everything to stay on the same track as best he could while
0: also being a husband and father. Seems like he has such a good head on his shoulders.
1: Absolutely. And I think that has a lot to do with the people that raised him, obviously. So his parents... Did offer their financial support. He also got a scholarship to a nearby university called Montevallo. So, this was only, I think, 25, 30 miles away from where he lived. So, it wasn't so far away that he couldn't have some family help. And he did get the tuition based scholarship. So, his family actually purchased a fixer upper home in the town where he was going to college so that he and Jessica could fix it up together and really make themselves a house and a home while he was also going to school and working several odd jobs. Wow. Yeah, he was doing stuff like landscaping and construction and essentially the best paying gigs that he could get while also being a father and a student. And he was doing a still a full slate of classes at this time. Now, there's two perspectives about this. To Alan's family, it seemed like he's working himself to the bone. For Jessica to help further their family and their situation. And Jessica was not appreciative. I think I can also understand, and this is what people close to Jessica said, was that even though she was rationally aware that he is out of the home all the time because he's in school or working, she's alone at home. She didn't graduate high school, she had dropped out to have the baby. So she doesn't even have her GED. And she is alone almost all of the time with the baby. And I think that maybe this wasn't her fantasy of how this life was going to work. They tried very briefly to move in with her mom and they didn't get along. And it was clear that the couple needed to be on their own. But at the same time, now she's getting resentful of him for all the time he's out of the home. Of course, yeah. So this was where the beginning of the trouble began for the couple. She did not like that he had this whole other life, especially when he started also participating in theatrical productions, which was something he had to do for his degree. But there were times that you would traditionally think that your spouse would be home, like when they have shows at night, that he wasn't going to be home because he was the technical director of a student show. And she began to think that he was being unfaithful to her. And this is just, I think she's hormonal. She's young. This is where her brain is going. It's not rational. It was not based in fact. He was not, in fact, having any sort of extramarital affairs. But she started showing up on campus at random times when he's in class, when he was in a stage production and causing huge scenes with the baby. So she's like coming and being like, this is your baby and you're never home. And like, are you screwing that girl? And Stuff like that. So this is unbelievably embarrassing and stressful for Alan. And I think that definitely on Alan's parents' side of it and his family side of it, they could not see why she could not see what he was doing for their family and why he wasn't home. This is where the sympathy begins to dry up for Jessica because she's now making Alan's life very difficult. Don't settle when it comes to your pup's health. Make the switch to fresh food made with real ingredients and backed by science. That's
0: nom nom. Jessie, how's Artie doing after her big scare last week?
1: Oh my gosh, you guys. She had to go in for an emergency surgery after a routine spay. It was super stressful, but she's doing fine. And luckily had nothing to do with her food or gastrointestinal system. But it definitely was a reminder of what we always say. That dogs truly are a part of the family because I cannot remember feeling that stressed out about almost anything in a very, very long
0: time. I can't remember you being that stressed out in anything in a very long time. Truly. It is very true. And that's why we are so excited to tell you about today's sponsor, Nom Nom. Nom Nom delivers fresh dog food with every portion personalized to
1: your dog's needs so you can bring out their very best. Nom Nom's made with real, whole food you can see and recognize without any additives or fillers that contribute
0: to bloating and low energy. That's because Nom Nom uses the latest science and insights to make real, good food for dogs. Their nutrient-packed recipes are crafted by board-certified veterinary nutritionists, made fresh and shipped free to your door. Nom Nom's already delivered over 40 million meals to good dogs like yours, inspiring millions of clean bowls and tail wags.
1: Nom Nom's ingredients are cooked individually and then mixed because science tells us that every protein, carb, and veggie has different cook times and methods. This gives your dog efficient energy and packs in the vitamins and minerals they need, truly getting the most out of every bite. Oh man, especially after this scare, I have to say, I just want to give Artie the best in the entire world after what she's been through and that is absolutely nom nom. And gosh, was she excited to finally get to have her nom nom in tiny little <sighs> portions
0: when she got home. I'm sure. Plus, nom nom comes with a money back guarantee. So, if your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, nom nom will refund your first order, no fillers, no nonsense, just nom nom. Go right now for
1: 50% off your no risk 2-week trial at trynom.com/lovemurder
0: Spelled nom.com slash lovemurder for 50% off. Trynom.com slash lovemurder. Who knew that a better pillowcase is all you need for better sleep? Let's talk about staying cool throughout the night and waking up with hydrated skin and hair. It's time to upgrade your sleep with Blissey's award-winning 100% Mulberry Silk Pillowcases.
1: Do you struggle to find that cool side of the
0: pillow all of the
1: time? Blissy Silk pillowcases are temperature-regulating and have naturally insulating properties. So if you sweat and overheat while you sleep, Blissy is for you. On top of that, it's also so good for hair because it reduces frizz, tangles, and
0: prevents hair breakage. It keeps the moisture in your hair and keeps your skincare products and natural moisture on your skin because silk does not absorb the moisture off of your face. You can say goodbye to wrinkles, dry, flaky, and red skin in the morning and wake up with healthier hair. Blissey pillowcases are made of 100% mulberry silk, which is
1: naturally hypoallergenic. So you can sleep more comfortably without itching or getting rashy skin. They're great for those with allergies. And unlike other silk pillowcases, these are of the highest quality silk and are machine washable, durable, and
0: even have a zipper to hold your pillow in place. Jessie, how many people on your holiday shopping list are getting a Blissey pillowcase this year?
1: Literally everyone.
0: I know you already have one or else you'd be getting one as well. I mean, I only have one, so.
1: <laughs> so I can still get you some, which makes me excited. I can use our code too. I think what I love about Blissy so much is that it pairs two
0: of my struggles and interests together, which is skincare and sleeping better. I think you're probably going to already know this, but my favorite thing is their eye mask. I literally, since having their eye mask on flights, sleep exponentially better.
1: Which is good because you're going to be coming out to visit me in 10 days.
0: They really do make the best gifts. They come in the cutest packaging. It's completely all done and dusted. You don't even have to worry about it. So we're excited to be working with Lissy again around the holiday season.
1: Absolutely. Blissey's silk pillowcases are the best silk pillowcases on the market. They have a ton of different prints and colors, and they make great gifts because there's an option for literally anyone. Guys love them too, and I actually mean guys in this case, because Nathaniel loves his as well. They have over 1.5 million raving fans, and you could be next. Try now risk-free for 60 nights at blissycom lovemurder and get an
0: additional 30% off. That's B-L-I-S-S-Y dot com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder to get an additional 30% off. Give yourself the gift of a good night's sleep with Blissy.
1: So they ended up having an additional child. (laughs) Not the solution. (laughs) Not the solution. We've said it several times. We need to get a t-shirt made.
0: Two things that will not fix your relationship. At least the children hopefully have each other.
1: Yes, exactly. So in November of 1992, the couple had their second daughter. Now, actually, the pregnancy had improved the relationship somewhat. I think that Alan's a really great, attentive father, and she felt taken care of during the pregnancy. But two kids under three, she's already feeling this pressure she's been feeling. She's alone again now with double the very young child.
0: Yeah. No, I cannot imagine.
1: Yeah. So things got bad again. It really was a situation where, and this is not reality. So we just don't get this. Like if he could keep Jessica happy, everything was going to be smooth sailing, but that's not life. Yes. Life is not always good. You don't always get what you want in life. And sometimes getting what you want, which is a nice husband and two children means there's going to be long, long hours where your nice husband It's not at home because he's got to work to make money for you. And these two children you really desperately wanted, well, they're going to be babies. That's what babies do. They cry. Oh, my God. That's what every time when the kids were really little and they were both like screaming in symphony together, like when we took long car trips, I'd be like, this is what I always wanted. This is it. (laughs) This is the sound of my dreams coming true.
0: (laughs) So funny. (laughs) with your soundproof headphones.
1: Well, that's what Nathaniel got. After a while, when I'm like cry laughing, like he's like getting a little concerned about me. He's like, we'll just put those noise canceling headphones on your face and you can go to a different place. (laughs) And I'm like, I love it. He's like, oh no, that's the look I don't like.
0: (laughs) Oh my God.
1: Yeah. So things are now not great again. And Ellen's like, I'll do anything. Look, this is totally unfair. You were right about one thing. It is unfair that I don't have to give up my dreams for us to have a family. And you do. That's right. It's not fair. So why don't you go back to school? So she got her GD and she started taking classes or one class rather. She took a history
0: class at his school as well. Well, I was going to say, what is her dream? What what did she want to do? I think honestly, her dream at that point was getting out of the house without children. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, but that's like real too. Like having just an hour outside of the house. Yeah.
1: I want to have something that belongs to me that doesn't involve my children or my family. That is fair. You're allowed to be able to want that. Even if you don't know exactly what it is, but saying like, even I just want a job outside of the home so I can feel good about bringing a paycheck home or having an adult conversation and feel good about my work. Because I do know that when I was very briefly a stay-at-home mom, or even before we started making money with this podcast, I wanted somebody to tell me I did a good job on something. (laughs) Like when you're a stay-at-home mom, I know there's a lot of you guys who listen to us or stay-at-home parent. It doesn't have to be a mother per se. There's no one who's giving you a positive performance review. There's no one who's (laughs) saying, I mean, hopefully your spouse is or, you know, your partner or someone. But like, there's no one that's telling you like, wow, you really kicked ass today. Or here's a bonus. I remember feeling, I mean, I'm an external validation person. So you can see why these I'm using these examples. But I think that just even having a conversation or feeling worthwhile in something other than that is something everyone
0: craves.
1: And so I can understand why just starting with taking a college course is a great start to her feeling more realized as a person. Yes. Yes. So she did. So she started taking a a history course and she started making new friends and Alan was very happy for her. He wanted her to get out in the world. He wanted her to have friends that he didn't know or weren't kid-related friends. Unfortunately for Alan, those friends were guys and the situation was not
0: platonic. Okay, wow, that was fast.
1: They were making her feel good, yeah, but I think that that's how Jessica derives... Her self-esteem, unfortunately. Like, I'm talking about all these, like, things, like, wanting a a positive performance review. I don't think that was exactly what kind of serotonin hit she was looking for. So she had told him that she was going to Washington, D.C. on a school trip for research for her history class. And he soon found out that it was not a research trip. She was going to Washington, D.C. to stay in a hotel with a lover. And he discovered that when he talked to the other guy's mom, which is just... What? How? Like, they're still really young. You have to remember that these guys are like 19, 20. So a lot of college students at this point were still living at home, obviously. Okay. So he he had tracked down the other man and called his home and his mom answered and said, no, he's with his girlfriend in Washington, D.C. he's like, well, that girlfriend is my wife. And mother of my children. (laughs) yes. So he had called her at the hotel she was staying at and she got extremely defensive and very violent when confronted. Yeah. How do you walk back from that? You don't. And I think that some people when confronted, they blow up. And it does seem like we don't know too much of the situation, but based on things that will happen in the future and how she responds to this situation and also how Alan responded to this situation seems like there was a history of domestic abuse within this relationship already, but with Jessica attacking Alan. Immediately, he knew that she was coming home and that there was going to be a huge confrontation. So he actually called his brother to come pick up his very small children and take them to his parents' house for the foreseeable future. He wanted to be home when Jessica got home, specifically so he could try to end things in the most calm fashion that he possibly could, but he wanted to do it to her face. That was the final straw for him. He felt like they had gone through counseling. He had tried to make her happy. Her cheating on him was the end. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. I think that's fine. And that's totally fine. I think it's fair to say that they made a good run at it. And it's okay to say infidelity is my deal breaker. That is totally okay. I think a lot of times people now try to work through it, which I also have so much respect for. I really do. But it's also okay to say infidelity is my deal breaker and make sure people know that up front. I mean, you just shouldn't be cheating.
0: <laughs> I you just yeah. sleep with the person you're married to.
1: I mean, that's great. Hopefully you get to do it a lot. <laughs> that's why you marry them. The all access pass. It's like when you go
0: to a theme park and you get the fast pass to ride all the rides. That's marriage and sex. <laughs> and maybe you get a hall pass, maybe, but it should be discussed. Yeah, if you want to visit another park, you should go you gotta talk to the person. (laughs) (laughs) Costs extra. Yeah,
1: it does, definitely. It's called a lot of communication and therapy ahead of time. (laughs) So that's all fine and games we were just talking about. However, this is not. Because when she comes home, at first he thinks this is gonna be a productive conversation because she seems kind of calm and she seems kind of contrite and he tells her the kids are at his parents and she's kind of like, okay, well, let's talk about how we can work this out. And when he makes it very clear to her that we're not going to work this out, this is it. I wanted to end it officially with you here and I will I will work out a very generous custody division. You can keep the kids and I just want visitation and we'll work out a situation, but I'm done with the relationship. She then got up, walked over to the kitchen where she took out a giant chef's
0: knife. Oh my God.
1: Yeah. And everything had been totally quiet and calm until this point. And he knew he was in danger at that point. And he ran to the door and managed to get out and slam the door as she chased him with this giant chef's knife that as he slammed the door, it went into the door, the knife and stuck there. Well, there goes custody. Well, he was afraid of her. He didn't think she was going to be violent with their children. He thought that her anger was limited to him. And also based on what everyone else had experienced of Jessica, it seemed that all of her anger and frustration were definitely directed at Alan and not at her children. So this was not necessarily a custody deal breaker for him. In fact, He was afraid of making her more angry. And one of the things that she had always said was, you'll take my kids over my dead body. They are my reason for living. If anyone tried to take my children away from me, I would murder them. Yeah. And he's genuinely afraid of her. So he doesn't believe she's a danger to the kids, but he does believe she could be a danger to him. So he's like, look, I don't want this to be ugly. So you can have physical custody of the girls. He also knew that... I mean, to be totally honest, he wants to finish school. He wants to, a lot of early jobs for the job he's trying to do is traveling with like a theater troupe. So he's very well aware that he maybe can't even be the stability that they need for their children and also pursue this dream. So I think that it's him looking out for the best in this situation but also looking out for the best for his career also and he really truly did not think that she was a danger to their children so he says you can have primary physical custody i want visitation you can even keep the house but jessica was not satisfied with that she even used in in court documents saying that he was like leaving her with this house that was falling down and he wasn't fixing it up and he wasn't giving her enough money to pay for all the repairs needed or the the heating bill And so that he was actually doing her a disservice, leaving her with this falling down house, in her opinion, when he really was trying to not shake up the girl's world, is essentially what he had been trying to do. So they had to end up selling the house to get rid of it. She ended up moving in with her mother and stepfather. And this was in her side so that she could get a job and that she could take care of her own kids. Because she was also telling people that Alan wasn't giving her any child support, which was absolutely not the truth. Even before the divorce was finalized, he was paying her as much money as he possibly could because he didn't want his children to suffer. But she was lying and saying, well, I had to move back in with my mom because he's not giving me any money. She's telling the kids that daddy's not giving you any money. You can't have that because daddy doesn't pay his bills. And if you look back at the financials, he was paying every single month. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So the divorce was finalized in January of 1994. And Alan thought that his problems with Jessica were over at this point. They had worked out a custody agreement. He had X amount of visitation. He would show up on those days. So yeah, there's no ending. I always tell people when they talk about marriage as like a bigger deal than having kids. I'm like, I love marriage. I'm so happy to be married to Nathaniel. But
0: like, it is a far bigger deal that we had kids together. 100%. If you have kids together and you're not married, I think that's a bigger deal than getting married.
1: Yes, it, absolutely. Because if something goes south, you are stuck with them forever. <laughs> There's no choice. Because even when you think like, okay, we've gotten through high school graduations and weddings and stuff. Guess what? They have kids. And then you have to go to all their shit too, all your grandchildren's yeah, no, shit. It's, it's and see you're forever. forever. <laughs> <laughs> it's forever. <laughs> so he was really hoping that this was it and it was not it because she started going out of her way to make sure that he never saw his kids, even when he was legally supposed to, when he was supposed to have his visitation. And honestly, this speaks to her previous trauma, but it's really, really, really fucked up that she's doing this to another generation because she would literally tell her girls their dad was coming and saying, I don't want to see him. So I'm going to have you wait on the porch. And then hours later, come out and be like, I'm so sorry. I told you, your dad just doesn't care. That was a day that he wasn't scheduled to come. And the kids don't know
0: that. So
1: sad. So he would try to call and talk to the kids and she would say, oh, they're not here right now and hang up even though they were there and wanted to speak to him. But yeah, where would they be? They're babies school, after school activity, something. Who knows? Playday, So sad for everyone. It's really sad. And also she wasn't behaving like mother of the year over here too, which like I, I always give everyone too much of the benefit of the doubt, obviously. But like the thing is, is if you want to fucking go off on your nights without your children, when you are a young divorced mother, that is fair enough. If you are letting them have a healthy relationship with their father and you're not bad talking him and you're making sure that on their dad's nights, you get to let loose a little and that's your prerogative. But she is screwing up her relationship with their dad. She's screwing their relationship up with their dad. She's making them feel sad and unloved and incomplete, which is just, it just makes me so sick and angry. And then she is having her mom essentially raise her kids, she would go away for months at a time. And her mom didn't even know where she was. At one point, Alan cannot get a hold of her to try to make sure he can come get his kids. And he calls her best friend. And her best friend is like, well, I just talked to her the other day. What are you talking about? He's like, her mom says she's not at home. I can't get a hold of her. I don't know what's going on. And so then the best friend called the mom and the mom's like, I didn't want to say anything because this is my daughter and I don't want to make her look bad. But She's been gone for two months and I don't know where she is. I can't get a hold of her. So I'm just doing all the mom stuff myself. And is she not letting Alan take them? I don't know if the mother was letting Alan take them or he's like trying to see them. And she's saying, well, talk to Jessica. I don't know what your arrangement is because I'm not legally involved in this. Because Jessica was also telling, I'm sure telling her mom, like, don't let Alan see the kids. And she doesn't know the ins and outs of their agreement. Yeah. So the best friend said that she called Jessica and was like, what the hell is wrong with you? And she's like, oh, i am just been seeing this new guy and he doesn't know I have kids. So I'm just kind of hanging out with him at his place. Oh my God. So she's like, get your ass back to your kids and figure this out. Or at least let them be with their dad if this is what you're going to do. So this was not going well, obviously. And Alan was getting really frustrated. He started documenting every payment because she's telling people he's not paying he started documenting every missed custody appointment that he had and he literally started a box called evidence. Wow. Because he's starting to have to create unfortunately a legal case against his ex-wife. During this all, he is still working towards a brighter future. He did obtain his degree and he got his first real job in theater when he became a stage manager for the historic Alabama Theater in downtown Birmingham.
0: Wow.
1: Yes. So it's a big deal. And it was there in 1995 that he met the great love of his life, Tara Clue. So Tara is the polar opposite of Jessica. She's accomplished. She's very calm. She's very self-reliant. She is kind. Even her parents said that she was the type of person who was never really overly expressive when it came to who she was dating. She was kind of kept all of her cards close to the vest. She told them about every other aspect of their life. She was an only child, so she was very close to her parents who did eventually divorce because they also got married really young. I think that they had Tara when her mom was 19 and her dad was 23. So they had been young love the same way that her now boyfriend was. So she kind of understood where Alan was coming from with that relationship because it had been like her parents who both actually were more of that. Conscious, uncoupling, like, let's work together type of co-parenting relationship. So the only thing that's really alien to Tara about Alan's situation is how contentious it is. Yeah. But yeah, Tara was just very even. You know when you have a friend who always dates, like, the crazies, and then they end up with somebody who's just smooth sailing, and you're like, (laughs) ah. Oh, thank God. Like, it's just like, oh, gosh, it's like the bomb on, like, your friend's soul, but also, like, the whole group. Everyone is benefiting (laughs) from this new situation. I think that that's how the Bateses felt and people who are close to Alan felt about Tara. She was so smart. By the time she met Alan, she had achieved a degree in art history. She had also minored in mathematics, and she had studied abroad in London. Awesome. She was 25 years old, and at that point, she'd already spent four years as an architectural historian for the Historic American Building Survey. She was already in it. She was 25 when she became the project historian for the Alabama Theater, which, of course, is where she met handsome and even keeled Alan Bates. So, Tara had actually been sent to the theater by the Department of the Interior. So this is like what department she's working with. So she's working with the government. Her career was going great. And she actually said that the last thing in the world she was looking for at 25 years old was love, which is, of course, what she found (laughs) when you're least looking for it, it is going to find you. (laughs) So because she worked for this part of the Department of Interior that was based around historic American buildings. She would be sent on different projects. She essentially worked on the project until it was in completion or, I guess, had started or had a plan, and then she'd move on to the next historic building. And when it became time for Tara to leave the Alabama Theater and move on, she decided to quit her job and stay, and she wanted to be with Alan, which was number one, but she also had another goal of getting a master's degree in historic preservation. Okay. Okay. So for her, it wasn't giving up a career for a man, but saying there's other things I want to accomplish that I can accomplish with you and staying in this job is not one of them. So let's do it. And to be honest, Alan was a little bit, a little nervous about her making this huge life choice based on him because it had only been a few months since they had known one another, but he was excited about it. He was, I think, so scarred from his relationship with Jessica that he was almost afraid to get excited yeah. about this at this point. But Tarot had this quiet strength about her, which is like, we don't have to get ahead of ourselves. Let's just see where this goes. I'm just making this decision for myself, but also to see where things go. And if it doesn't work out, nobody's at fault here. I just move on. We both move on. It was just very rational after everything he'd been through. And before long, they were just head over heels. And that's what Tara's family said about Alan was that she had never really talked about a guy before. She had never been excited about a relationship before. And she was just head over heels for Alan and the feelings. Yeah. I think it's exciting for parents to see a different side of their child come out when they meet somebody that's really good for them. So Jessica was also moving on. She was moving on in her own way. She had gotten a job at a comics and games store called The Lion and the Unicorn. And uh, apparently, much to Nathaniel's great chagrin, she played Magic the Gathering. What? She was a big Magic the Gathering player. Wow. Although I was in Mexico when I was researching this story and love M. William Phelps, but his description of Magic the Gathering was like so off base. He's like, it's like a Lord of the Rings type game with wizards against evil. And he was like, that is not even remotely it.
0: <laughs> it was really big in the 90s, though. That's when I played. I think it was the most mainstream it's ever been in the 90s. Yes, 100%. It was like at every card shop, like baseball card shop. It was basically like pox. after Pogs. Yeah. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Just the natural evolution after Pogs. You know I did Pog competitions. Like, I think. I think told me that on a previous episode, which guys, There's
1: I've known Andy for almost 20 years. And there's some stuff that I find out on the show, like that she was a competitive pog player. I don't even know what the word is. A pogger. Compogative. A pogger?
0: Were you called a pogger? No, I don't remember. I was like literally 11.
1: (laughs) So yeah, I think it was pogs and then Magic the Gathering and
0: then Pokemon. And I feel like we were a little too old for Pokemon. We were. We were. Yeah. Yeah. Thank goodness. I think pogs and magic are enough. (laughs) (laughs) That's enough. I mean, Beanie Babies
1: too, somewhere in that whole milieu. Yeah, so she's in, yeah, 96, January 96. That's a heyday of Magic the Gathering. So she began dating a coworker at this game store and very quickly moved in with him. Now, one of her friends, and I really feel like, honestly, Jessica only has frenemies because none of the
0: things her friends said were very nice in this book. Well, they were probably like- If they were her friends, they were probably trying to help her be a better person. And when you just keep fucking up over and over and over again, at a certain point, it's like,
1: yeah, there gets to be frustration and resentment even in the friendship. Yeah. But yeah, they said that she had found out that this guy was maybe going to inherit some money or get some money from his mom or something. So that sparked her interest in him. This coworker guy, the magic guy. The magic guy, the guy who works at the magic store, which is what everybody knows you go to if you need a sugar daddy, is the man who works at the comic book store. The grown man. (laughs) Just imagining the comic book guy from Simpsons right now. Yes, exactly. So the two had been living together for six weeks before she admitted that she did in fact have two small children who were living at her mother's house. Now, later on, she says that she didn't tell him because she heard that he didn't like kids, not because she was hiding them. She just heard that, like, oh, don't date that guy because he doesn't like kids. And so she said, I just never brought it
0: up. How do you, like, not bring that up? I don't know. I talk about my kids all the time to people who wish I wouldn't. I guess you're also not hitting up the comic store guy for money that his mom may or may not give him.
1: I'm definitely... Never talking about my kids with people I'm trying to have sex or a relationship with. Except for Nathaniel. And he loves it because they're his kids too. So he loves talking about them. (laughs) So he had a very different story. He straight up talked to her and she straight denied having kids. She told him that she was divorced, but it had been quite a few years since they'd been divorced. They weren't in each other's life anymore and did not have kids. So by the time she told him the truth, she was already pregnant. Oh my God, stop it. Well, the man later said, this all comes out in court later on, by the way, because they did have an abortion, I guess, that time. But five or six months later, she was pregnant again. And she did end up having that child. So she did have a third child with the comic book store guy who has (laughs) wished to remain anonymous, which I totally understand, bro, why you would not want your name associated with the story. So they did have a child together. And, and this all comes up in documents because she is now once again in a custody dispute and trying to get child support from this comic book store baby daddy over here. And there were a lot of legal issues and wrangling about this. And the judge set the child support like extremely, extremely high. And the guy had to go back to court. And so there was like a month he couldn't pay. And then she said, well, I'm not gonna let you see the kids. And he said, honestly, when they were in court later on and he did eventually get the child's part lowered to what was appropriate for somebody who works at a comic book store, that he was actually kind of afraid to see his child, to try to force the issue because he knew what had happened with Alan. And he saw that she had assaulted Alan, that there were horrible cases of abuse in their relationship. And in fact, his lawyer had found out a case a time he didn't even know that Jessica had assaulted Alan. So this is another domestic abuse warning. In late 1998, Jessica had actually been dropping off the kids at Alan's and allegedly, and I say allegedly, but there were witnesses to this, so I don't think it's so alleged. She instigated a fight with him at that point. She started getting physical with him when he wasn't responding and taking the bait. So when he refused to get into a verbal altercation with her, which his mother, and there was another witness, I think a friend of his were witnessing this. And did they have the babies, I hope? I think that they had taken the babies somewhere else at this point. She started hitting him and scratching him and eventually pushed him down the stairs which resulted in him breaking his arm.
0: Andy, you know that Nathaniel and I just celebrated our 10th wedding anniversary. I do. It looked so romantic down there in Mexico.
1: It was. But I got to tell you, what was even better than the sun and the waves and the romantic setting was the conversation. And that's why we're so excited to share today's sponsor, Paired. It's a relationship app for
0: couples. That sounds just like you guys. So, for Paired, the way it works is that you and your partner download the app, pair together, and every day Paired gives you questions, quizzes, and games to have fun, stay connected, and deepen your conversations.
1: Some of our favorites so far, especially just going through our big milestone, are the questions focusing on our memories. For example, what do you remember about the first time you met? When the app asked me that, I said something about the joy of just talking with him and the conversation never ending. And he said
0: something I can't repeat on the SAD. <laughs> <laughs> that also sounds like you guys. Harry <laughs> also has really fun quizzes and games. Each day you get a quiz to play or question to answer, and you cannot see your partner's answer until you answer yourself. Some of the most popular games are Would You Rather and Love Languages. It's simple and often hilarious.
1: Some of the most popular quizzes are saying sorry and how's your sex life, which personally I think make a lot of sense together if you're thinking about it.
0: <laughs> Whether you're just a few dates in or have been together a long time like Jesse and Nathaniel, it's time to lighten the mood and have fun with your partner by using Paired. Head to paired.com lovemurder to get a 7-day free trial and 25% off if you sign up for a subscription. Just head to
1: P A I R E D.com slash lovemurder to sign up today. Connect with your partner every day using Paired. A happier relationship starts here, so you don't end up like any of the couples on our show.
0: There is a lot to love about the holidays: the food, the fun, the family, the friends, the listening to your kids ask about Santa every day. <laughs> The fetching, a.k.a. our made-up
1: but now totally unmissable annual gathering for cutting down our perfect Christmas
0: tree. Andy will be there. Uh, Exactly. But one thing that isn't so great is the waste. Each year, Americans throw away 25% more trash from Thanksgiving to New Year's. But what if we told you there was a way to get all of your holiday shopping done without the guilty feeling over the waste that typically comes with it? Meet Blueland. Blueland is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and the planet. And this holiday season, Blueland is having its best sale of the year so you can save and shop sustainably for your friends, family, and even yourself.
1: The idea is simple. Grab one of the beautiful Forever bottles, fill it with warm water, drop in the tablet, and get cleaning. Refills start at two twenty-five, and you don't have to buy a new plastic bottle every time you run out.
0: You can even set up a subscription or buy in bulk so you never run out of the products you use the most. From cleaning sprays to hand soap to toilet cleaner and laundry tablets, all Blueland products are made with ingredients that you can feel good about. I did one of my Andy Vortex searches while I was pregnant for sustainable and environmentally safe cleaning products, laundry detergent, dishwashing soap, everything. And I wanted it to be something that I could reuse the bottles. And I absolutely fell in love with Blue Lands Forever bottles. They're glass and they are so durable and they're beautiful and they're easy to keep clean. And all of the little refill tablets come in these recyclable brown craft paper that makes it easy to recycle. It's just the entire branding and the scents and the smells that are available in each of the products are perfect and I fell in love with it. So I've been using Blue Land in our house for I guess almost 4 years now because I bought the first batch when I was pregnant. So crazy it's been that long. Yeah, I I love it. Their branding's also great. Comes delivered in really sustainable, eco but still design friendly boxing and packaging. It's phenomenal. And we are, I personally am so, so, so excited to be sharing it with all of our listeners.
1: Plus, for a limited time, Blue Lands Hand Soap is getting a festive upgrade. This is great for our family with a beautiful chocolate box inspired gift set with cozy scents like peppermint, winterberry, and vanilla frost. It's the perfect gift for your loved one or
0: yourself to reduce waste and try out some new scents. I am so excited for all of the holiday sets at your house next weekend.
1: <laughs> yep.
0: <laughs> to take advantage of their best sale of the year, up to 25% off your entire order, go to blueland.com slash lovemurder. You won't want to miss this. Blueland.com slash lovemurder. That's blueland.com slash lovemurder. So
1: his mother and his friend called the police, one of them, and she surprised them by not leaving. So when she just went outside and when the police came, she was scratched up and bleeding and she was crying hysterically. And she was saying, it's because of me. He's assaulted me. I'm the one who called, essentially, even though they knew that she wasn't the one who called. And very quickly, they realized that she, based on the marks where she'd been scratched on her arms, had gone over to a rough brick wall and essentially rubbed herself against it hard until it broke skin to make it look like she had injuries as well so wild unlike alan who had genuine scratch marks with most likely if this had gotten forensic you know his skin underneath her nails and he had a broken arm and witnesses and witnesses yeah so they could tell obviously who was telling the truth in this situation now Alan claims that this was not the first time that he had been abused by Jessica, but this was the first time that he filed charges. And the charges resulted in Jessica losing her most recent and a very, very short-lived job. She had been working as a clerical secretary for the Birmingham police. What? Yeah. Well, they said that they were going to fire her anyway because she was just not showing up for work and she was doing a shitty job as it was. So now that she had gotten herself arrested for assault, it was easy to say goodbye to Jessica. Wow. But it was not all for nothing for old Jess. While she'd been working there, she had met her next boyfriend, a police officer named Jeff Kelly McCord. No.
0: Yep. No.
1: Yep. This is gonna be husband number two over here. I'm gonna call him Jeff, but just so you guys know, I think that everyone growing up called him Kelly, and I think she mostly referred to him as Kelly. But just to make this clear, his given name is Jeff, so I'm just gonna call him that. Jeff seemed like a pretty much average guy in every way, from all the descriptions in M. William. Phelps' book. And even later on, I was on Bonnie's blog of crime, and somebody pitched in saying they knew him from high school. He was just a nice guy. He was just a really average, nice guy, average looks, average grades. They said he was average in sports. He wasn't very good at it, but he wasn't bad at it. It was a kind of guy who just faded into the background. I can't even think of a real description for what he looks like for you guys because he's just one of those guys with a forgettable face. He was just kinda average. And it did not seem like he had much experience with women before he was with Jessica. Which was perfect for her. Perfect. And it's really funny too, because some people even suggested that he was a virgin when he met her.
0: And he, like in (laughs) later on in comments, was like, I was not. Oh my God. He was like, I was definitely not a virgin.
1: Well when we talk about this whole story, I'm like, dude, I don't think that's the thing that you should be like really focusing on based on where this story is going. I don't think you should be worried about that because there's nothing wrong with being a virgin or being asexual or just not having sex. Nobody everybody doesn't need to be having sex 24-7, despite what popular media tells us.
0: It's so funny.
1: <laughs> despite the rest of the people in this episode and previous episodes in every episode we talk about. So it seemed like She very quickly got him under her spell. It was the same thing. It was like the attention, the seeing him, the making him feel special and wanted, the sex. All of that is just such an aphrodisiac to somebody who has felt unseen, average. Average, making him feel special. Yeah, it's a little special Sunday. (laughs) Yes, he was a quiet, like affable every something guy, just a normal guy who then Jessica got her teeth in. And some people said too that maybe Jessica also wanted to get involved with him because she knew that he would wife her up pretty quick. And she was getting competitive with Alan. Okay. And with Tara. Yeah. Alan had been dating Tara for a while at this point, though he was trying to keep it as quiet as possible. But at this point, because they had been together for, I think, like two and a half years, maybe more, Tara had met the kids and she was very angry about any possibility that Alan could have a, that nuclear family that she had so desired and lost with this new woman that was going to be, in her opinion, playing a mother to her children. And she also just wanted to one-up him, and she thought, also strategically for the court system, that it would look good if she was aligned in a healthy marriage or outwardly looking healthy marriage to a police officer. And indeed, Tara and Alan had really been doing extremely well, and after many years and careful consideration of all parties, they had gotten engaged and they wanted to be married. So they ended up planning a big wedding for June 1999, which they met over the summer four years earlier. So this is not like they're just
0: rushing to the altar at this point. No, this seems very responsible and normal.
1: Yes. And they wanted to get married at the Alabama theater. Cute. Which is super cute. And shockingly, Jessica hadn't made too much of a fuss about it that they made these plans and that they said it's a non-negotiable. We're not going to get married unless the kids can be there. And she said, of course, absolutely, they will be there. And so they booked a theater, they sent out invitations, they got a caterer, and the week of the wedding, Jessica's off the grids with the kids. They can't reach her. Kids are gone. That's so scary. They were less concerned about the safety of the children and more frustrated because clearly to them, this was a ploy that Jessica was pulling to force them into a situation where either she ruined their marriage, yay for her, or they got married without the children. And then she could say, Well, daddy doesn't even love you. He didn't even invite you to his wedding. Yeah. He didn't even wait for you to get married. So messed up. It's really messed up. And so Alan and Tara made the very hard decision that they were not going to play that game and they postponed their wedding. Wow. That is so big of them. Just Alan said, There's no way I'm going to make my kids feel like they're not the most important part of my life. And I wouldn't get married and I wouldn't invite. Tara into our family without them being there and being part of it. And Tara agreed, by the way, 100%. But the stress of all of this did almost cause them to break up altogether because Alan actually tried to break it off with Tara after this happened. Because from his opinion, he had been with Jessica. He was the one who had children with her. And she was torturing both of them. And she had just ruined Tara's wedding day. And he was the one who, at the end of the day, could not get married without his children being present. And he thought that it just wasn't fair to Tara. She'd waited five years for this moment. And now they're not getting married. And he doesn't know when he wants to get married because she's like, well, when do you want to reschedule it for? And he, for a few months, was pretty gun shy about it. And he was like, I just think that you deserve better because, yeah, but she can make that decision. And that's what Tara said. And she was like, I would choose you and the children because she loved those girls over and over and over again. I'm a big girl and this is my decision. I mean, there was times I'm sure she was stressed talking to her parents or her girlfriends about this. But like at the end of the day, she chose Alan and those two girls. Well, Alan had a feeling that things were only going to get worse, which I think is why he was trying to push Tara away a little bit to save her. And they did start getting worse. Jessica started really refusing Alan even more access to his children. He would not see them at one point over the holidays. He missed his youngest child's birthday, Thanksgiving and Christmas one year. He was getting really frustrated. She was eventually found in
0: contempt of court because obviously these were, this was legal visitation. Yeah. And is the cop with her while she's doing this or is she doing this all on her own? They were dating at this point and I believe he was aware that
1: she was doing this. So she was found in contempt of court because they were also there. His attorney is filing all these motions being like every time. And they were frustrated because they felt like they really weren't getting anywhere. I mean, he has a box of evidence. (laughs) Yes. She was ordered to spend 10 days in jail but she wasn't even present when the judge ruled that because she just would not come to court appearances. The judge said the sentence would be suspended. Like she wouldn't have to spend 10 days in jail if she started showing up to court appearances and complying with the custody agreement, okay? So it's like, you don't have to spend 10 days in jail. You just have to get your ass into court and make sure your children are produced at the times that your legal custody arrangement says you have to. And then you're not going to go to jail. So it's pretty easy. Just do what you're supposed to do. They started getting better. Because of that, she actually did start producing the children when she was supposed to. She agreed to let Alan and Tara pick up the children like five days before their next wedding, which was a year later. So they had a postponed wedding, which was one year after they were supposed to get married. And they weren't taking any chances this time. They were like, okay, well, we're going to pick up the kids five days before the wedding and keep them for essentially the summer. At this point, they were living in Maryland where Tara was going to graduate school. And so they said that they wanted to pick up the kids, get married, and then keep the kids for the school vacation. And Jessica actually said yes. So they're excited. And they arrive in June of 2000. And so far, so good. The kids get in the car and Jessica says, oh, just so you know, I have some news myself. I actually got married last week, so I guess I beat you to it. Wow. (laughs) Bravo. Bravo. So at that point, they knew kind of that she'd been dating somebody. So he shows up. He's in the house at the time and he introduces himself and they're like, "Okay, great. It was like she was fine now letting them get married. Now that she had gotten married first and let the record show that my wedding happened one week before your wedding. Good on you. Yep. But you know what? They were like, all right, good for you. Let's like actually move on with our lives. And honestly, they were hoping that this guy wasn't a creep because of course he's around the girls. But other than that, he seemed fine. And if she, it was going to make her less psychotic about them, then great. So they got married. It was a wonderful occasion. They were very happy. And the best part was that they ended up keeping the girls until September then. So awesome. Yeah, from June until September, they got to all live together in Maryland. Unfortunately, the happy times were over for good in September of 2000 when the girls did get dropped back off. Alan would not end up seeing his children for a full year after they dropped them off and he had no idea that that was going to happen, obviously. So Jessica later says that I think they had moved to a new house and she didn't realize that it wasn't in the same school district as the old school. So they were registered to go to school in one district. And then when they moved, she says she couldn't get them into the new school district. So she decided to homeschool them. Now, she did not register any of this. She did not, she was not licensed to. Homeschool her own children. She did not participate in any homeschooling curriculum or organizations where I know there's a lot of uh, resources available to people who homeschool that they can get the curriculum, but also have organizations where homeschooling families can do social engagements together. None of this. No, she's not doing any of that, obviously. She's just keeping her kids out of school. She's also doing this because she doesn't want him to know where his kids are. So she's moved. So he doesn't know where she's living. The kids aren't in school, and they're not seemingly registered to go to school anywhere. So now he can't find them at school. He is losing his mind, and he can't find his children for nearly a year. And in fact, during this time, Jessica had even instructed Jeff to remove their mailbox, no mailbox, so that she could have plausible deniability about receiving any court summons. I don't know if that's how that works. I don't know. During this period where her own daughters are in hiding and not having any relationship with their— But the craziest thing about this is that she's married to Jeff, who's a police officer, and he's still—he was in a different town. Like, his precinct was not where they were living, I think. So between that, maybe just no one knew. But it's, like, crazy to me that this man is working for the police while his wife is essentially off the grid with two children who are not going to school and avoiding their father and is in contempt of court at this point. Yep. and what about the third kid? So the third kid is still living with her. I'm pretty sure that the, I don't know how involved comic book guy was originally because he was still scared of her a little bit. So I think eventually they came to some agreement, but I think that she maintained full custody over that third child. So they have now four kids. Oh, she got, had a kid with Jeff. She had a kid with Jeff during this whole period. It was a baby boy in September of 2001. So this is one year after the kids essentially disappeared. And it seemed like after a year and his attorney and going to the police, finally the police were taking this seriously. And they showed up on Jeff and Jessica McCord's door on December 18th, 2001. Wow. Yeah. So she has... I think like a three-month-old baby now, her latest one with Jeff. And they finally find out where she is and they arrest her at home. And she tries to tell them that she's not Jessica. (laughs) She says to the arresting officer that she's actually Jessica's sister, Belinda. Belinda. That's also a pseudonym, but like it's the one they used in the book. So I'm gonna go with it. I'm Belinda, and that I was living with Jessica and Jeff while they were married. And I had an affair with Jeff, and he decided to stay with me. So Jessica got frustrated and she just left. So she just left her kids here She's in the wind. In the wind. She's not here. If you're looking for her, don't look here because it's just me, or sister, who slept with her husband and mm-hmm. looks just Kept like him. her. Looks just like her. Honestly. Probably not the craziest thing we've heard somebody pull off on the show. Looking at you, Audrey Marie Hilly. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But the worst part of this was that she got her kids to lie and say, that's my aunt. That's not my mom, too. And then later she has the balls to say that it was her kid's idea. That she was like, oh, that wasn't me. It was my crazy kids just trying to protect me. They were the ones who decided to say, mommy, what if we just call you auntie? Then they won't know it's you. I'm like, come
0: on, ma'am. Scapegoating the kids is always a bad look. Bottom of the barrel. Bottom of the barrel. is Scraping it. Scraping bottom of the barrel behavior right
1: there. So she was finally arrested and taken to jail. She's supposed to spend 10 days in jail, but obviously it's December 18th. So her lawyer appeals that she can maybe get out. She'll serve the rest of her time after the holiday, but let her be with her kids for Christmas. And the court says, we will consider that on one condition— Alan has to sign off on it. He's the one who's been affected by her decisions. And why aren't the kids spending Christmas with him? I think that they were. So it would be just more like she has, remember, two additional children. So if he says that she can get out, then she can get out for a couple days and then go back in and, and serve the rest of her few days in jail. And because Alan's so magnanimous, he says yes. He says that the point was never to punish Jessica. It was to find his children, to make sure they were healthy and safe and to spend time with them. It wasn't to punish his ex. And so he even lets her get out of prison so she can be with her children or most of her children on Christmas. (gasps) And that's just, it just shows you the infinite compassion he had. And the whole point is that everything she's doing is not for her children's best interests, it is to punish her ex. And even when he has every right to want to punish her. He doesn't. Maybe he should. But, I mean, he's like, look, I don't want to punish you, but also enough is enough. Enough is enough. I have given you every opportunity to be worthy of full physical custody and you have done things that are harmful to our children because also his attorneys by now had found proof that she was not licensed to be homeschooling the children. No. So he's like, well, that's fucked up. And- my kids are going to get real schooling. So he and Tara filed for full custody. It's time.
0: He gave her all of the chances in the world here. Yeah. And now they're at home, not in school, not socializing with no mailbox. I mean, it's like, come on. It's time. So
1: the court date, there was going to be a trial, a custody trial, and it was set for early March, 2002. And Jessica was not going to be able to wiggle out of this one. She has a record now. I think he had the kids. I think she was going to get the kids back at some point. There was some sort of situation, but she's going to have to show up for this. It's dire now. But Jessica did not have any intention of ever going to court or ever having this custody case go to trial because she was going to let Alan take away her children over her dead body or really. Over his. Yeah. So we are fast forwarding in time a couple months to this just happened at Christmas. Now we are on the early morning hours of February 16th, 2002, which is when those chicken men saw the fire and the authorities found two bodies inside the trunk of the burning car. So... Unbelievably, the way the fire had gone, it had burned so hot that it burned through this bolt that was keeping the license plate on the car. And the license plate had fallen in a way that it was still totally readable.
0: Okay, yeah, because it like burned it off, yeah.
1: Yeah, because it kind of like burned off the license plate and it fell in a way that it wasn't completely scorched. So they were able to... track the plates and realized that this car had come from an Avis rental car center that was based out of I think Birmingham. The car had been rented by Alan Bates and his family had been desperately looking for not only Alan and Tara, but also the children. Oh my God, stop. Yes. Alan's parents had settled in Marietta, Georgia. So they had, I think after their youngest son moved out. Yep. He had taken an engineering job in Marietta, and then they had decided to stay there afterwards during their retirement. So the plan was that Alan was supposed to fly into Alabama with Tara, and they were going to rent a car and then give a deposition. Well, Alan was. Tara didn't have to give anything. So Alan was going to give a deposition for the upcoming custody trial. So this was getting ready for the trial. And despite the acrimonious court battle ahead, Jessica had consented to, after he gave this deposition, to have Tara and Alan, or just Alan, they didn't know, pick up the girls and then driving the girls to Marietta so that he could have a weekend with his family. Because they're still living in Maryland at this point. So they're like, why don't we then... Pick up the girls and take them to their grandparents for a long weekend because Birmingham was only two and a half hours from Marietta. So they knew that the deposition was supposed to end no later than five. Alan had said that they were planning on picking up the girls around six. And seeing as it only takes two and a half hours to make it, by 10 p.m., they were panicking. Yep. They could not get through to Tara's phone. They couldn't get through to Alan's phone. Last they heard, they were supposed to be leaving around six. They have no idea where they are. In desperation, they tried to call Jessica, which you can imagine that there's no love lost between Alan's parents and Jessica in this situation, but she's also not answering. So then they tried to call the Hoover, Alabama Police Department because Hoover is the town where Jessica and Jeff lived. And that's different from where Jeff worked. And of course, they're adults, but they say, look, There are supposed to be two little girls with them as well. We can't get a hold of the other parent. We don't know what's going on. This is a very contentious situation that they're in right now. Please do something. Help us. And so the police department ended up filing what's called an overdue motorist report saying essentially be on the lookout for what they might be driving, although, of course, they didn't know the
0: license plate or anything because it's a rental car. Yeah, but can't you also track that down? Like you can call rental car companies, but I guess they wouldn't do that much. That's like an Andy. Right
1: away. (laughs) That's, (laughs) well, so, you know, what's so funny is that this guy is like Andy. He's an engineer. He knew that they had rented from Avis for whatever reason. And so he actually called early the next morning when it had been all night and they hadn't heard from anyone and the police department wasn't getting back to them. And I don't even know if he had called every rental car company in the airport? Because that would have been an Andy move too. And he might have done that. Thorough. Yes. But eventually he did get to the Avis counter who had rented a car to Alan Bates. And he is essentially trying to say, like, do you have a GPS on board? Were they using it? Can you track like where they're going? Can you tell me where they are? And they're like, sir, 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 sir. uh, I'm really sorry, but we can't answer any of your questions. We need you to talk to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Whoa, already? Yeah, already. Because they found that car. At what three thirty in the morning, I believe. Whoa! And why Georgia? If it was it in Georgia, it was in Georgia. It was in Rutledge, Georgia. He said he knew at that point. He was like, "It's something bad. There's no hoping to know anything." But it was like, "Was it a bad traffic accident?" Well, what was it? And of course, now he's wondering, "Were the kids with?" Them? Yes. What happened? Of course, like this, your brain is going a mile a minute. Well. Sadly for the Bates and Clue families, it was indeed Alan and Tara who were in the trunk of the car, but the children were physically unharmed and not with them. They were with Jessica and her mother, which we're going to talk about in a little bit where they were at the time. So Alan's father was able to recognize what was left of Alan's watch and dental records did later confirm that was indeed Alan and Tara. There was absolutely no question of what had happened to this wonderful couple because, I mean, obviously they're in the trunk of a car. They didn't do that to themselves, but they had both been shot multiple times before being what? There was, I think, something like four bullet holes in both Alan and Tara. Oh my God. So they had been killed and then dumped in the trunk of a car that was later set on fire. They were able to find a single 9 millimeter slug that was recovered from Alan's wrist. And of course, there was no question to who the number one suspect would be. No, of course. Jessica and then, of course, her police officer husband, Jeff Kelly
0: McCord. Like, it's just so crystal clear. Like, it's egregious that you would think that you would get away with it.
1: Well, Jessica even says later that she didn't answer the phone right away when Alan's parents were trying to call her because she was on a date with her husband. And then she said she tried to call them back the next day and she was like, I couldn't even talk to them because they're like, what did you do? What did you do to him? And she was like, they were just hurtling abuse at me. So they were just not in a place where I could talk to them. Of course, if something happened to their son, you're going to be their number one suspect. No one else in the world had it out for Alan and Tara. Okay, so the children were fine. They were physically unharmed. I mean, obviously, they're not going to be fine for a long time, if ever, emotionally, because this is horrible. They had been at the time with Jessica's mother at Jessica's mother's house. Jeff and Jessica were separately questioned, and they told similar stories. Not exact, but similar stories. They said that the kids were supposed to be picked up by Alan at 6 p.m., but that he had never showed up. They don't know what happened to him. They said they tried to call him. He didn't answer. Because Jeff and Jessica had post-Valentine's Day plans, it was the 15th and Jeff had been working for Valentine's Day, they had dropped off the girls at the mother's house and just gone about their night. They said that they went to the movies and Jeff did have the movie stubs. Of course he did. He's a cop. Yes, and you know what the other cops said? The other cops who were investigating said that it was touch bullshit because he produced two, like, perfectly fresh, maintained
0: stubs. Not ripped.
1: <laughs> yeah. They were like, also, anyone who goes to the movies, you get them ripped and then you like put them in your pocket or you throw them in your purse and they get a little dirty or bent. Nobody is like putting them under like, you know, in a laminated case, like it's a baseball card or a...
0: Magic the Gathering card as a bar. Our... Well, she probably had a lot of those uh, trading cards. <laughs> the sleeves. sleeves. The sleeves is what they
1: call them, Yeah. <laughs>
0: readily available yeah she just plucked one of her sleeves out for
1: those stubs so they're like it's already sus that these like you have these perfect immaculate stubs so they said that they also this story they snuck into lord of the rings didn't really like it and then they snuck into black hawk down and they didn't really like that either so then they just left that is in case somebody asked them what the movie's about. Because then they say, well, I don't know. I didn't really see that much of it because we ended up leaving. So it's like, this, it's like they're, they're trying to think of everything. Like, well, if they asked me about the end of Lord of the Rings, I could just say we missed it because we were in the beginning of Black Hawk Down. Yeah, did he get the ring? And then the we ring? just left that one. <laughs> <laughs> so they said that after that, they went to a strip club at some point. And Jessica said she had never been to one before. She wanted to try it out it wasn't really for her. She said it wasn't really to my taste. Then we left and that they had spent some time walking along the river, watching the sunrise, and then decided to hit up the Home Depot bright and early when it opened because they were doing a home remodeling project. (laughs) It's like, I don't know about all of you guys. That's great if like when your four children are with somebody else that you want to stay up all night like old times sake and watch the sunrise. But when with, I'm alone with my husband and I don't have to wake up with kids, I'm like, okay, we're in bed before midnight and we're getting eight hours
0: and that is what is happening. 100%. Eight hours of sleep? Are you kidding me? I'm not staying up. I got 11 last night. Really? Yeah. <laughs> God. I go to sleep up till amazing. 8.30 this morning. Oh my God, that's incredible. So yeah, I'm not like
1: like on the riverside watching the sunrise when I have four children. Don't forget the cherry on top though, Home Depot. And hitting up the Home Depot, not even going to bed, going straight to the Home Depot. And what did they buy there? They needed some stuff. Let's say they were doing a home repair project, which we're going to get to. I don't know if they bought something associated with that. And that's what they were kind of, yeah, covering. Trying to say we were there buying some wallpaper and some bleach and some some things that you would probably cover up a murder with, maybe, (laughs) just maybe, but also just, you know, a romantic trip. OK, so where their stories deviate is that Jeff had said that the girls were supposed to be picked up at their house at 6 p.m and that they ended up dropping the girls off at Jess's mother's house at 6:45 p.m. and then going on their date, whereas Jessica said that they dropped off the girls at the, her mother's at 5:30 p.m because Alan was going to pick up the girls at her mother's because she didn't want Alan coming to her house. She didn't like him knowing where she lived and she didn't want him to set foot in her house. So she was using her mom as the place to pick up. So those are two very different time frames and stories. I mean, that is we're talking about an hour and 15 minutes difference, which makes a big difference.
0: And also a whole different location. Yep, yeah, exactly. I think that's the bigger thing. I feel like that would be something that she would talk with Jeff about.
1: Yeah, so that was really strange that he couldn't keep that straight. Also, the daycare provider had dropped off the girls actually at Jessica's mom's house around 4 p.m. So they're both lying. Both of these stories are false. Those girls were never at home and they were never from the time they went to daycare in the morning in Jeff and Jessica's care until the very next day. So you actually have 24 hours to cover up. Yes, (laughs) yeah. Well, they don't have totally 24 hours because both Jessica and Alan did show up for depositions that day. So we do know that Alan and Tara were alive after his deposition because it seems like they had finished the deposition, then gone out to eat. And Tara's father actually talked about how some people came forward later to say that they were witnesses to... Tara and Alan getting some food together after the deposition and how happy they seemed. Okay. And that it actually made him feel sad, but also happy that her last day on earth was joyous and that the two of them had had this wonderful time together. So there were people that saw them alive at some point. So during this interview, Jessica refused to let them search her house And so they had to obtain some warrants. And while they were doing so, the police decided to keep a covert eye on the house just to see if anything's getting moved out or there's any nefarious activity over there. And they did see at one point Jessica's stepfather leave the home in a van after putting something in it. And then they said it was very strange because he seemed to like drive all over Birmingham, either trying to shake them or looking for something. But it didn't seem like he had a fixed location. And then eventually he did stop and he tried to dump a stripped down couch in a dumpster. Huh. So immediately, of course, they jumped out and said, What are you doing? And this couch had been like all of the cushions had been removed. And he said, I don't know. Jess just told me to come dump this couch. They're redoing their house and she wanted me to get rid of it. They thought that was a pretty interesting timing, of course. Unfortunately, because whoever had stripped this couch, Whatever they were trying to get rid of wasn't necessarily the couch, it seems like, because they did not lift any forensic evidence or blood or anything from this couch, but they knew it had something to do with
0: it, clearly. Yeah, well, if it's already stripped down, I would hope that whoever stripped it down stripped it down right before handing it off to the stepdad.
1: (laughs) Do at least one criminal thing right, you assholes. (laughs) (laughs) You crooked cop. (laughs) Yeah. But they knew now that it probably had something to do with wherever this couch came from. So they did interview the girls who were almost 12 and almost 10 at this point. Uh... So they were asked if, because they had been home at this point, if there was anything different between when they left that morning to go to daycare or aftercare or whatever. I don't know what daycare for a 12, 10-year-old. I guess aftercare or beforecare because they're going to school. Are they, though? (laughs) I think at this point they were going to school, yeah. If there was anything different between when they left and when they came home and they said that there was something different in the den their mother was completely redoing it they said that she had gotten rid of a couch and she had gotten rid of a rug and they had a different color wall or something so they're like they need to get inside that house and get inside that den so they did get a search warrant for that and that was on Monday February 18th And they knew exactly where they were going at that point. So yeah, this is moving fast. So when they get into the den, they see that obviously somebody had done some shoddy wallpaper work on one wall. It looks like it had been put up by an amateur. Tough crowd. (laughs) (laughs) Although just like the kids said, the carpet had been removed and it looked like there was a space where a couch had once been, but it was no longer there. So they ripped the wallpaper down and they find out that there is a bullet that has gone through to the garage on the other side of the wall. And when they trace the trajectory, they figure out and they find that the bullet has gone through the wall and is just like peeking through the sheetrock on the other side of the wall. So they were able to recover that bullet and it ended up being a perfect match. Same type of ammo fired from exactly the same type of gun as the bullet that had been found in Alan Bates' body. They were also able to find trace amounts of blood on the leg of the den's coffee table, and that blood was a perfect match for Tara Bates. Oh, my God. Wow. Who, according to Jessica, had never set foot inside her home. She didn't even want them knowing where she lived, so how the hell did Tara's blood get in your den, Jessica? Paper towels had also been found at the scene of the burning car. They had been apparently trying to get rid of couch cushions and other material they had used to clean up the scene, but some paper towels had been found. Actually, it was kind of sad. It was like a, like a kid had drawn on a paper towel and it was somehow found in the vicinity. And they could not find any places in Georgia that sold that specific type of paper towel But turns out there's a ton of them in Birmingham, and in fact, it was perfectly matched to a roll of paper towels found in the McCord's house. Paper towel. Yes. There was some other witnesses as well. No one could remember the couple going to the strip club that they went to, and this was particularly noticeable because the bouncer who was working at the club they said they went to actually had previously worked in some sort of security or law enforcement adjacent field and knew Jeff McCord. Oh, my God. So yeah, he would know. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, I know that guy. That's Jeff McCord. And apparently he didn't know that that guy was bouncing at the club because he, I think they would have figured out a different type of alibi. So it was especially evident that they never went to that club because that guy would have remembered him. Jessica's friend also came forward when she saw the news because she said that she had never really believed that Jessica was going to go through with anything because she was kind of dramatic. So, you don't necessarily think that somebody's going to come through with her threats. But she said that when she found out that she could not set Alan up for domestic abuse, because she, of course, had tried to say that he was the one who was abusive towards her or towards the girls. But it was such a falsehood that I didn't even mention it, obviously, and it was easily disproven. But when she couldn't get away with that, she told this friend that if it was looking like he might actually get custody, that she would quote, get Kelly to do it, which is what she called Jeff. So after this friend heard about the murders, she called Jessica to say, oh my God, did you hear? Jessica's like, yeah, I know, of course I know. And she said, well, tell me that you didn't have anything to do with it. And she said, Jessica didn't say anything, but she said, you better keep your mouth shut about our conversation, our previous conversation. Nope. That boy, she's like, I'm calling the police right away. So that was enough for the authorities. There's some other small pieces of evidence here or there, but really that's, that's the broad strokes here. On February 22nd, Jessica and Jeff Kelly McCord were arrested for first degree murder. At the time of her arrest, Jessica was pregnant with her
0: fifth child. Oh my God, no.
1: That was another one where she was like, well, you can't take me or you have to be gentle with me or I get special treatment because I'm pregnant. And they're like, yeah, sure, bitch. And she's like, no, I really am. And she was. Despite her best efforts to get out of bond, the court refused bail and Jessica was in jail when she gave birth to that child. The baby was given to and raised by an unidentified family member. Okay. So leading up to the trial, the DA decided to separate the two cases. They didn't want Jeff and Jessica being tried together. And they also offered Jeff a deal to turn on Jessica. Wow. They said no deal was ever offered to Jessica. They knew that she was the mastermind, the instigator. Without Jessica, it is highly unlikely that Jeff would have killed anyone. I know.
0: It's so sad.
1: But he also has kind of like, it's kind of like a doctor. It's, you have a kind of a stronger responsibility for the sanctity of life and protecting it. I know. When you're a police officer, so it's almost worse. But they said they, they felt like Jeff at least had some respect for authority, and he might be willing to make a deal with them, but he refused to turn on Jessica at that point. But they were like not even going to try the other way around because they just wanted to get her. They knew she was the the main person, so they're both going to trial. Jessica's going first, and both of these cases are death penalty cases. We're in Alabama, so they have a real because of the the lying in wait is what the prosecutors believed happened. They believed that. Jessica and Jeff told them to come pick up the girls at their house, somehow lured them inside the home, and then clearly shot them while they were sitting on the couch based on the trajectory of the the bullets and where they found the bullet. Lying in wait, the fact that it was multiple murders, those were enough to qualify for a death penalty case, which is what they both became. On February 11, 2003, Jessica's trial kicked off first. The prosecution presented her history of abusing Alan and disregarding court orders. They presented evidence that Jeff and Jessica had lured Tara and Alan to their home to kill them and for no other reason. I mean, the kids were not there. They knew that the kids were not present in their home when they invited them inside the house. They also discussed the forensic evidence found in the McCord home. Oh, and this was another big piece of evidence. They had tried to say that they did this like long date all around Birmingham when their cell phones were traced going into Georgia, obviously, because they were the ones who disposed of the bodies out there. And so the cell phone evidence showed that they were not where they were. And in fact, were just where the bodies happened to be burned. Look at that. Jessica's defense said that the case was circumstantial and hilariously enough, at one point said that they didn't really have a motive. It's like, are you, what are you talking about?
0: It wasn't a good lawyer, huh?
1: Maybe a normal person, a rational person, wouldn't have a motive to kill their ex and their wife, but she is not living in, like, a normal place. She's living in a vengeful place, this woman. And he tried to argue that Jessica and Jeff had gone for a drive that they didn't mention, that the cell phone, but the only thing they did is they ended up going to a shopping center in Georgia and didn't tell people, and how is that against the law? And that the science behind the... Ballistics forensics was shoddy and couldn't be trusted. The jury did not buy it because they found Jessica guilty of premeditated double murder after only two and a half hours
0: wow. of deliberation.
1: Wow. And that's really fast for a death penalty case. So, with death penalty cases, I think we've talked about this in the past, they have to have a whole nother portion of the trial. It's not just like, okay, here was the trial conviction and now the sentencing, there's a whole additional portion with additional testimony and arguments for and against the death penalty versus life in prison without the possibility of parole. So after additional testimony, the jury recommended life in prison without the possibility of parole seven to five. So there were five people that believed Jessica deserved to die. The judge agreed with the recommendation and sentenced Jessica to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Thank goodness. So she was l Well, after Jessica's conviction, the DA went to Jeff and said, Sure, you don't want to think about making a deal? Wait, they can do that after her conviction? Well, it's already she's been convicted, but he hasn't been tried yet. So he's saying... Didn't go too well for Jessica. And the prosecutor believes that Jeff is the one who
0: actually pulled the trigger. I don't know why they were cutting him a deal then.
1: Well, I think that they knew it was at her instigation and manipulation. So I I think they went to him and they said, five people wanted her to get the death penalty. And we didn't even present that she was the one who was shooting the gun. And your next cop who should be protecting citizens. And we're pretty sure you're the one who actually fired the gun. And we have some forensics that can show that. So what do you think your chances are of not getting the death penalty? And he said, probably not so great. I'll make a deal. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm sure that also Jessica is going to appeal and Jeff's testimony will help in the appeals process as well. And they also want to know exactly what happened. I mean, we have a witness, we have a murderer who's willing to talk, and it's always better, I personally think, for the families when there is a confession. Some semblance of truth. Some semblance of truth. Like, it's it's great, I think, when the state proves their case and they get a conviction, but there's always questions if the, the perpetrator continues to deny it, whether it really is the truth. And in this case, Jeff... Seemed at least to tell the truth of what really went down, and this is what he said happened on February fifteenth, two thousand two. Jeff said that Jessica had always convinced him that Alan was a horrific abuser, and that that was why she was trying so desperately to keep the girls away from him. So in his mind, when she was doing all this stuff and taking down the mailbox and everything, he was helping shield her and her children from somebody. So that plays into also him as a police officer and a protector. So she convinced him that her lawyer believed and said that Alan was likely going to win full custody. Now her attorney says that's not true at all. He never said that to her. In fact, he still thought, despite everything that had happened, that they still had a good case because he had never had full custody of the girls and he had had very little visitation and then just one summer. And so he thought that there was still a possibility if Jessica promised to turn around her not participating in the court system situation, that she could still end up with majority physical custody. So he's like, that's not true at all. But this is what she told Jeff McCord. She tells him that her attorney says that there's no way they're going to win, that these girls are going to go into an abuser's home and God help what happens to them. And that there's an injustice happening right now and that only he can help prevent this horrible life of abuse these beautiful children are going to have. And he said that he believed her. It's only since her trial and all of this evidence has come out that he started not believing her. He was overwhelmed by it. He said no a number of times. And then eventually he said he was worn down and he said that he would do it if Jessica came up with a feasible plan. So Jessica came up with a plan that they would lure Alan to their home saying that he could take the girls and that they would kill him in their home and that they would take the car or the body somewhere and dispose of it in some way. And I think it was Jessica's idea to burn it. And then they would try to make it look like he must have been carjacked or waylaid on the way and that they never even saw him because they had an airtight alibi. Oh my God. Oh my God. They did not plan for Tara to be with Alan. Tara was not the intended victim of this. When Jessica saw Tara and Alan at the deposition, she at that point realized that Tara was probably going to be with Alan when he came to the house. And she called Jeff at that point and said, Well, does this change anything for you? Because we're probably going to have to kill both of them. And Jeff did say no. He looked at it like collateral damage, even though he did not think Tara had done anything wrong. And the investigators did ask him, is there anyone that could have been with them, not counting the kids, of course, that would have changed your mind? And he said that he and Jessica would not have been able to kill Alan's parents So if somehow the parents had walked in with Alan, it probably would not have happened. But they didn't care about killing Tara, apparently. Wow. At 6 p.m. that evening, Tara and Alan pulled up and Jessica escorted them around, like, the back door to where the den was. Alan seemed uneasy, Jeff said, because, of course, he's not used to this. He doesn't want to go in her house. Usually, if he was picking up the girls, they were outside and they were ready to go. So he doesn't know why she's inviting them in. He doesn't know why he doesn't see his children. Bring them out to me. Thanks. Yeah. Jessica told them that the girls had a surprise for them and that they wanted to show them something, so they had to come in the house. She said, and I feel like this is also like preying on Alan's interest, which I'm sure he shared with his children, that they wanted to put on a play for them. So she's like, come on, come on. You got to get in here, sit on the couch, and then they'll be right down. And so apparently the, the den couch faced like a staircase. So they're making conversation and he's like I don't really hear the kids like he's starting to get uneasy Tara was trying to make polite conversation she looked a little bit more at ease than Alan I think Alan his spidey senses must have been tingling like this is not right something's not right here because he was getting very uncomfortable and then basically after probably being in the house for about three minutes and making this weird awkward conversation at some signal from Jessica Jeff took a nine millimeter gun from his back of his waistband and he just immediately shot Tara twice in her head now he couldn't remember at this time if he shot her once or if he had double tapped her a law enforcement military technique we've talked about he didn't know but he did in fact hit her twice at this point and she dropped right to the ground apparently Alan then jumped up and was Turning when Jeff started firing at him. Alan was hit and he tried to stand and Jeff said he swore at him. He called him a fuckhead. He said, you fuckhead to him, like cursing him. And then Jeff shot him again and said, no, you are basically. Well, he killed the man, the innocent man. And then when he was sure that Alan was deceased, he turned and shot Tara two more times just to make sure that she was dead. Jessica was sitting on the staircase watching the entire thing. And afterwards, they began their cleaning process because they knew they only had a limited amount of time until Alan's parents would wonder where he was and they had to set up all their alibis. Jeff was under the impression that he had only shot six times, not eight, which is why he was collecting the casings So there wouldn't be any evidence in their home. But he had not really, I think, in the frenzy of the moment, he hadn't been keeping track of how many times he shot the gun, which is why they found one in the wall and they found one hidden in Alan's wrist. Thank goodness. And this is just a really despicable crime on so many levels. Everything that Alan has done was for the love of his children. From the very first moment when she got pregnant and he decided to have a relationship with this woman and that child, to fighting for custody and to be a part of his children's life, to being at the deposition that day, far from his home, to get full custody of those children, and then to go inside the house of a woman he knew physically had hurt him and wanted him dead in order to see his children perform a play. She had weaponized his love of his children against him and his loving wife every step of the way. Yep. It was just deplorable. Jeff was given two consecutive life sentences, but with the possibility of parole. So they apparently, because he made this deal around the time all the dealings were going on with her sentencing, they were actually going to prison on the same bus. And there was like a divide between the male and female inmates. And Jessica at this point had found out that he had made a deal after, so he wouldn't get the death penalty. And she apparently, when she got on, screamed to everybody, including all the male prisoners, hey, everyone, that's my husband right there. He's a cop.
0: Oh, my God.
1: So that he would be assaulted in prison. Wow. It's just the shitty cherry on top of the dirt ball sundae. Oh, it just has to, like, the vengeance is so alive. So bad. Uh, yeah, Jessica will die behind bars. She's never getting out. Jeff was up for parole in 2017, and he was denied parole. Based on what I could see, he's next up for parole in 2028. The Bates families raised Alan's girls and they are now in their 30s. And like I said, they don't like to comment on this case publicly, at least from what I could find. And I did find some um, newspaper articles that had their real names in it. And I just thought it was so unnecessary. But there's one last thing that I did not tell you during the course of this story that made me so angry, just so unbelievably frustrated, which is that during the death penalty part, of jessica's trial there was a witness who was the court reporter in the custody deposition who said that jessica said to her i don't even know why he's fighting so hard for oldest daughter because she's not even his oh my god and during that part of the trial on the stand she admitted to the court that that first child, that pregnancy that made Alan want to get married to Jessica, that child was not biologically his. At the end of the day, it just makes me so infuriating that of all the lies she told, that was the one that made this good man be in this situation to begin
0: with. Crazy.
1: In conclusion, when you're summer loving or just any
0: loving, just make sure you're using protection out there. Yeah, and if forever for whatever reason that protection doesn't work, let's follow the co-parenting, everyone getting along approach.
1: Yes, it might be hard. They might be real assholes. They may be cheated on you or did something terrible, but do it for your kids. Do it for your kids. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love this holiday season so no one ends up
0: murdered.
1: Bye guys. Bye.